Ronaldo vai partir para a bola, Ronaldo, Ronaldo vai partir, paradinha, atirou, golo! Já está! Já está! Já está! Hello and welcome to Portugal podcast number 100. Yes, today marks a century of podcasts. And so it's only right we mark the occasion with a special guest. None other than the original host of the Portugal podcast, European football expert extraordinaire, Andy Brassel. Hi Andy, thanks for finding time to come on. A quick question. Can you remember when we did our very first Portugal podcast? No. <laughs> Is the short answer for that? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I looked it up yesterday. It was actually on the 8th of June 2009, would you believe wow, it? Wow, really? Yeah, a long time oh. ago. And the topics on the agenda that day were Portugal just having beaten Albania 2-1 in World Cup qualifying and Kiki Flores uh, not impressing very much as a coach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Doesn't time fly? Also on board, as usual, is our resident Portuguese football coach and journalist, Vasco Mota Pereira. Hi, Vasco. How are things in the fair city of Porto? Hi, Tom and Andy. Uh, they're very good. Sunny and warm <laughs> for a change. <laughs> ah, that does make a change. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, things are looking pretty sunny in Porto from the football point of view, as we'll talk about uh, presently. I'd just like to take the opportunity, first of all, to thank... Uh, Marco Pereira, Sean Gillen, Ben Shave, Vasco, and all the various hosts and guests and participants on the pod over the years. But most of all, I'd like to thank you, listeners, for making it all worthwhile by listening in your droves. Yes, all five of you. And uh, providing your wonderful feedback. It's been a fun ride. Uh, of course, there's never really a dull moment in Portuguese football. And just as well that we have some great topics to chew over for pod number 100. Topping the bill goes to uh, Sunday's massively anticipated Lisbon derby, which is set to be even more of an intense occasion in the wake of Jorge Jesus' switch from Benfica to Sporting in the summer and the subsequent war of words that has broken out between the two clubs. Uh, we'll come on to that shortly, but first of all, as the Champions League group stage reaches the halfway stage, we're going to appraise the performance so far of Portugal's two representatives in the competition, Porto and Benfica and we'll assess their chances going forward. Uh, first of all, let's start with Porto. Vasco, Porto continue to make serene progress in the Champions League under Hulan Lopetegui. Uh, you've expressed some misgivings about the Spanish coach to us in the past, but following the win against Maccabi Tel Aviv on Tuesday, his full Champions League record since taking over at the Estadio de Real reads like this. Played 15, won 10, Drawn four, lost one. That's not half bad, is it? Uh, do you think his style of play is particularly suited to the Champions League? And uh, how do you explain that fantastic record? Um, that's, that's actually a good question, uh, which will get me into trouble, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> this, um, I think that uh, the cynic part of me will say that Porto haven't had that many hard and tough uh, matches in the Champions League. Uh, over the past couple of years, uh, they were top seed last year, which uh, kept them from playing uh, very tough uh, competitors. Uh, having said that, they made the most of it. Uh, they actually they ended up playing Basel uh, and then getting trounced after a, a fantastic win at the ground. They ended up being trounced by Bayern Munich. Uh, but so far, it's 
Bayern Munich and Chelsea. Those are the only matches so far, the tough ones. Other than that, Porto have been blessed with favorable draws, uh, which is not to say that um, it's not impressive in itself anyway. Uh, on the other hand, I do believe that Porto, that, I mean the club, not necessarily this squad, uh, they know how to turn up for Champions League matches. Uh, and so I think you can actually feel it in the stadium, the, the, the atmosphere that you can feel uh, with, with supporters, with, with everyone involved, uh, that those are the nights that the club live for, uh, which I think helps quite, quite a bit. Um, anyway, in terms of Lopetegui, I think... Um, I don't think my, my, the misgivings I've expressed, I don't think that it, I've never meant uh, to say that he was a bad coach or anything like that. I just say that it's very open. And to be honest, I think that, um, Porto will still get exposed as, as the, the second they progress out of the, of, out of their group, to be honest. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's a good point about their uh, Champions League and European record. It really is a, they've got a formidable record there at the Dragão uh, over many, many years. Uh, Andy, uh, Porto's midfield has been especially impressive this season, uh, so much so that the record signing, uh, record transfer, Gianelli Imbula, has really quite struggled to live up to that 20 million euro price tag. Uh, and he, he, he's even been left out of the team at times. Uh, as a close watcher of French football, tell us what Imbula can bring to the table and whether you think it's just a matter of time before he comes good at Porto. I, th- I think he will uh, turn it around. Um, of course, it has been a difficult adaptation, but um, you know the whole face of Porto has changed since last season. Um, because they've still got a really strong squad, it's easy to forget how many um, go-to members of the first eleven aren't there anymore. And um, that's an incredible turnaround. I think that was easy to overlook at, at the start of the season, especially when on paper they still had the best squad in, in, in Portugal, especially when um, there was so much expectation on uh, Lopetegui, as we, we've touched on before. Um, but for Imbula individually, I just think you have to look at him being so young. And I, I think Porto, whereas a lot of people in France saw it as a sideways move for him, it's, it's actually a really good one simply because um, the one thing that's lacking in his game, in my opinion, is th- that bit of tactical now, so that bit of tactical discipline. And I don't think there's many better places to, to, to learn that than, than Porto, um, especially with, um, as Vasco was saying, that you know level of belonging in, in, the, in the Champions League. What he can do, like a lot of um, modern deep-lying midfielders, is um, you, you, know, you think of deep-lying midfielders as being incredible passers or great tacklers, but he's a great dribbler. So he will get the ball in front of the defence and move it quickly um, into the opposition half, which I think for a a team like Porto is really, really important. Uh, I think for a team that has a lot of the ball to get caught in sterile possession is is, is quite an easy trap. Um, That's uh, something that he can help avoid. Uh, I think defensively he's still learning the side of the game. He can he can switch off positionally a little bit, and I think that's been apparent in his problems so far. He he felt he was played a little bit too far back at at Marseille, and then he's been talking to the French media saying being played a little bit too far forward uh, at Porto. And so I think you have to look and say the answer's in the middle, and that he really has to adapt. But um, I think the fact that, as I said, not just the face of the team has changed, but the face of the midfield has changed. I mean, who envisaged Porto having such a 
a Portuguese core this season, of course, with uh, Andre Andre coming to the fore. Danilo has been fantastic uh, since he arrived for, for, for the national team as well, um, since he since he came over from Madeira. So, um, Imbuli will get there. It's just um, a ca- case of him really finding finding his place in the team, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, the, like you said, an absolutely uh, fierce competition for places in that midfield because we've yeah. got... Uh, of course, Andre Andre, like you mentioned, but also Danilo and, of course, uh, Ruben Neves, who in some mm. ways are quite similar uh, players, you know, similar positions players. So uh, it's really going to, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, spur them on to, to, uh, to, to ever better heights. And uh, talking of individuals, we can't possibly fail to mention that man at the moment, uh, Ruben Neves. Uh, the 18-year-old became the youngest ever captain of a Champions League team on Tuesday, and he put in another Mastercast display of almost freakish maturity. Uh, Vasco, I know it's always easy to get carried away by young rising stars, but Neves has been so consistently good for a year now. Could he be the latest Portuguese recent line of true midfield greats, following in the footsteps of players such as Paulo Sousa, Rui Costa, Luiz Figo, or am I getting a bit ahead of myself? Well, well... Um in, in short, I think, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I have been actually getting ahead of myself as well um, because every time I've seen the man play, I mean, I'm always uh, absolutely impressed uh, by his... He, he's only 18. I've, I've checked his uh, birth date a few times, to be honest, uh, because uh, <laughs> every time I've... Particularly in the at the stadiums, you always have a different impression of where he's looking, what he's doing without the ball, because on the TV, the, the cameras are following the ball. And he looks absolutely like he's been doing that for years. And I think it's easy to forget that, I don't know, a year and a half ago, his, his halves uh, were only 40 minutes long. He only played 80 minutes uh, for, at, at a match. Um, he's so mature, and I don't think he's just on, on a hot shoot, as, as the Americans would say it. I think uh, it really looks like... Um, he knows what he's doing, that he's uh, aware of what he's doing and why he's doing. The thing is, uh, back in terms of Paul Sosa and Ricosta and Figo, like you mentioned, uh, the players had some more time to mature, usually at their clubs. Uh, I'm, I think it will all come down to whether Rubenes is allowed to stay at Porto long enough for him to mature, not just as a player, but as a person as well, because if he's... Uh, quickly hired by, I don't know, Chelsea or City or something for 40 million euros and has to adapt everything too soon, uh, too much too soon. I mean, it really will come down whether he has the right frame of mind for it or not. Because in terms of, of pure football, I think it's really, really, really up there. Uh, because it's, he can play as a single holding midfielder, he can play in a double man, uh, two man midfield. Is uh, he knows what he's doing? He knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pinto da Costa just yesterday, the club pre- Porto club president Pinto da Costa said that uh, he was hoping that uh, uh, Nez would be a fixture at Porto and become a legendary captain for for many years to come. But of course, we all know uh, many talks, and so that <laughs> might be a little bit of a pipe dream. But uh, yeah, I think I agree with you, uh, Andy. Uh, you mentioned it just a little while ago. It's amazing to think that Porto sold over 100 million euros worth of talent in the summer. They lost seven of their first team regulars, and yet already they seem to have built 
uh, rebuilt side that has really got their fans excited. Uh, how good do you think this Porto side really is, Andy? And uh, or how how good can they become? Uh, do you think they can do some damage in the Champions League? I, I think they can, but I think when you talk about how good they can become, I think Vasco touched on it before. How how much time will they have to become that good? Because uh, a, a great team in Portuguese club football is normally only a good team, a great team for for a season, uh, you know, a season and a half max with with, with January transfer windows. Um, so, you know, it, it, you you look at the the players that are progressing at the moment, and you think if it if it goes well this season. Um, for all those players, uh, Nevis will move on. You know that, that, that would be ideal if he did develop at, at Porto, if he, if he had the time to do that, as um, Vasco was saying. But it's, it's not going to happen. It's just never going to happen if he continues playing at the the level that he is. So really, the question for him is is picking the right club really um, to develop from there, and whether he'll have the choice to to, to really pick the, the the club that's right for him. Um, I think in the short term. Um, that they can become very, very good. I think the thing that's maybe encouraging a little bit more in terms of them staying together for a slightly longer period of time is there is that Portuguese core. Um, I think really the only player who's in there, I think Mbulu is a buy to sell. You know, there's no yeah. doubt about that. That they've, they've bought him with the, the, the express idea of selling him onto the, the Premier League for, for more money at some point and you look at his characteristics and and that's a really good fit but as you, you were saying before Tom the, the competition is such in there um, that you feel you know they might be able to hold on to, to, to some of those players for, for for more than a year which which would be really good for them I, I think um, you know when you're talking about Porto's improvement it's very very fine margins there wasn't really a lot wrong with them last season Maybe just Benfica with that little bit of extra experience, that little extra bit of determination, that little bit of extra George Jesus um, definitely yeah. helped. And, um, but but you know I, I think that season will have done a lot of those players some some good. I, I think you can see Abubakar who was in, in, incredibly patient last season, knowing he wouldn't get past Jackson, but every time he came into the team he was ready, and now he's shown straight away that he's ready to reproduce that form on a, on a consistent weekly basis which I think is um, a huge tribute to to his quality um, and, and his mental strength as well and his, his professionalism um, I think the fact that um, you have this um, going back again to this idea of a, a Portuguese core and especially uh, Danilo and Andre Andre sort of growing together um, I, I think that's, that's quite a hopeful sign for Porto yeah, yeah, great points, uh, Andy. Of course, you're absolutely right. It's one of the, the great frustrations of being a Portuguese football fan. Occasionally, these absolutely amazing sides are just thrown together. But, of course, they never last more than a year. We can think back to Jorge Jesus' first Benfica side with, uh, of course, mm. Coentrão and, uh, you know, and Aymar and Oscar Cardoso and Ramirez and David Luiz and Avi Garcia and that just uh, incredible side that just, uh, unfortunately, Di Maria, that just got uh, broken up straight after. And, of course, th- the very next season, Andre Villas-Boas' Porto was the uh, same, same story, really. You know, Falcao Hulk, uh, that side that just uh, swept to the treble that uh, only lasted for one season. And I think that's also a fantastic point you make about the Portuguese core and maybe offers a little bit of hope that it, this side might last a bit longer. Because, of course, Andre, Andre, 
the son of a, a very famous Portuguese Porto, a very famous Porto footballer. So he's got a, you know strong emotional ties to the club. Neves has been at the club since he was eight years old, and so uh, you know maybe that will make them convince them to to stay a little bit longer before before making the jump. Okay, uh, moving on to Benfica, and uh, despite the defeat against Galatasaray in Istanbul on Wednesday, uh, the Eagles remain top of Group C and uh, with a decent chance of making progress to the knockout stages for what would only be the second time in seven seasons. Uh, Andy, uh, what do you make of uh, Rui Vitoria's Benfica this season? Um, I'm really impressed with, with their start. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of assumed, a bit like Manchester United in the, the dying embers of the Sir Alex Ferguson era, that it was just the coach holding together an, an exceptional bunch of players. Um, and obviously, United, that very much proved to be the case because the, the, the minute he, he disappeared, it, it all fell to the ground. But I, I think um, we're starting to see that, you know, whatever your views of, of, of the merits of George Jesus, I think the fact that, um, that the, the players have, have held it together says a lot for their um, um, their mentality. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And um, you know, of course, we saw how much um, Jonas added when he came in last season. But I, I think you look at um, you know that central defensive partnership that everyone assumed would be makeshift of, of Luis Al and, and Jardel. Um, you know, they've still got great leaders on the pitch in Jonas and um, uh, Julio Cesar, of course, as well. Um, and I, I thought when um, Rui Vitoria at the start of the week was talking about the derby and I asked us to, to look ahead to the derby um, before the Galatasaray game and um, he said the derby he said well we're not thinking about this this club has got an incredible um, uh, affinity with European competition incredible history in European competition and I thought that is such a tremendous barber sporting uh, that, 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 that for me, that is straight out of the George Jesus playbook. And I thought, yeah, exactly. I thought that was actually uh, maybe not only at Sporting, but directly at George Jesus. I thought that was a little. Yes. <laughs> a little yeah. Yeah. Hello? I'm still here. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I've, I've actually shut up for once. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we lost you. Okay. Uh, Vascal. Tough taskmaster, uh, I'm going to say that again. Tough taskmaster, as you are, you let it be known that uh, you did not believe uh, Rui Vittorio was the right choice to succeed uh, George Jesus at the Estadio de Luz hot seat. Uh, after a shaky start, things have generally looked better for Benfica in recent weeks, with the added bonus that Vittorio seems willing to cater to President Luis Felipe Vieira's long promised insistence that he wants to make Benfica's youth players integral to the team's future. Uh, do you have any revision on your Rui Vittorio appraisal? And uh, another thing, uh, why the hell doesn't any team ever come in for the magnificent Nico Gaetan? Well, uh, well I think, well, I'll start with the, the last part of your question, if you don't mind. Uh, I think, uh, as, for instance, Fogonez is proving, uh, this time around, or even Brahimi, I think you have to shine in the Champions League. And Benfica haven't uh, been exactly lighting things up over the past years in the Champions League, uh, which means that teams, uh, I mean, the teams with money are less, uh, will be less prone to, to 
to invest so much money in a player that, that shines in the Europa League or in the Portuguese League, which, let's be honest, is still uh, a step or two behind um, the, the, what's considered the top five leagues in Europe. Uh, so I think if Nico Gaetan uh, managed to keep doing what he's been doing uh, in the Champions League, um, I'm sure everyone will come for him, uh, all, all the, the, the good teams with money. Because if you're just shining against Murillens or something at the, the Stadio de Luz, um, it'll be it'll be harder. It, I'm afraid it, it doesn't really make much sense to me because with with all today's with all of today's uh, scouting tools and possibilities, it doesn't make much sense. But it does seem every once in a while that teams uh, make a lot of decisions based on uh, what what who, who who you see on Tuesdays and Wednesdays in Europe. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just my opinion because I see a lot of bad decisions being made uh, that, that don't make a lot of sense uh, if anyone had seen the, the matches. And the first case that comes to my mind is Mangala at City. So just, let's just leave it there. Um, as for my appraisal, as you mentioned, on Rui Vitoria, I, 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 I still remain convinced that this one, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I never meant to say that it wasn't going to be a, uh, a very good season. I, I never meant like they were going to finish eighth or tenth. I remember having this discuss this discussion with you because I think that Benfica will end up close to the top. Uh, and every time I watch Benfica play, uh, I see so many holes that any decent coach will be able to exploit. And, and against Galatasaray was just another example. Uh, the team are just uh, deployed in two banks of four. Rui Vitoria is doing. More or less the same thing that he did at, at Guimarães, just playing the team uh, 10 meters higher. higher. Uh, but there's no pressure on the man with the ball, which usually leaves a lot of gaps. And the second goal from Galatasaray is just a textbook example of what might happen against Sporting. Um, so I think that, and I also remember telling you that uh, I thought that Rui Vitoria, uh, this, this tactical blueprint that he has, would probably work best against... Uh, Tougher teams, uh, which was one of the one of George Jesus' um, weak points. Uh, so I think that it will be okay for most tough matches, but I don't think Benfica under Vitória will be able to to steamroll opponents uh, week after week after week as it as they do under George Jesus. But <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> okay, well, interesting points as ever, Pascal. Let's see uh, what uh, time will tell us if you're bang on. Or not. Uh, now, uh, probably, was... probably not. <laughs> Let's turn our attention to what promises to be a fiery occasion on Sunday afternoon in the Portuguese capital. Benfica host cross city rivals Sporting. This is always. Uh, one of the biggest fixtures in the Portuguese football calendar. It's a very special one this season, even more passionate than usual in the wake of coach Jorge Jesus's sensational switch from the reds to the green and whites in the summer. The build-up to the match has been marked by mudslinging of the highest order, with sporting coach Bruno de Cavalho launching almost daily attacks in the media against Benfica, accusing them, among other things, of attempting to bribe referees and uh, Benfica responding by suing Jorge Jesus for 14 million euros on the grounds that uh, they should be paid one euro indemnity 
Therefore, non-material damages caused to every Benfica fan, and they say they have 14 million fans, by his walkout, uh, as well as the other uh, kind of mundane reason of an alleged lifting of confidential material from the Luge to the Alvalade. So, as you can see, <laughs> very, very tense atmosphere surrounding this match. Andy, in your extensive experience of travelling all around Europe and sampling the atmosphere firsthand of many of football's biggest rivalries, uh, how would you rate the Lisbon derby in terms of intensity and passion? It's intense, uh, and it's become more intense in recent years. Of course, the Jesus factor is going to add something, but um, the fact that sporting have, have been improved of late, I, I, I think, and, and they've become rivals again, real rivals again, I think is, is something that's ramped it up a little bit, and I think you could see that in ticket sales last season as well. Um, we've seen in some Lisbon derbies in recent years, um, especially when Sporting were really struggling under Godinho Lopez, that there are a lot of empty seats at the games. Um, of course, that's a re- reflection of an economic climate as well. And um, in one case, the game at the Avalad was on a Monday night, which wasn't particularly helpful either. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's good to see it's picked up again. I still think that you just don't get that quite that level of nastiness that you get in um, Porto versus Benfica. I think that's, that, that's something different because, you know, it's contrasting cities, contrasting philosophies. You know, it goes a, a long way back. If you go in the FC Porto Museum and, and see that, that the language that's used to describe um, the rivalry with Benfica, it's, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. If, if you spend any time in Porto, it's, it's an absolute must-do. It's a tremendous museum. Um, but it, it, it sort of opens a window to, you know, how deeply that sort of um, that, that, that contrast in worldview is is, is held. This is interesting, um, but but yeah, it, it it is really something in Lisbon. I, I don't I don't think there's any doubt about that. And um, like I said, particularly special this time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, Vasco, it's often said that the form book and any tactical blueprint tends to go out of the window in these uh, highly charged derby matches. Uh, now, with so much emotion tied up in this game. Uh, one suspects that could well be the case on Sunday. Uh, as a coach yourself, uh, how on earth can Rui Vitoria and uh, Jorge Jesus go about trying to get the players to control their emotions and stick to a game plan? Well, uh, I mean, I don't necessarily agree that everything goes out the window. I mean, I, I agree that uh, emotions uh, run much higher on these particular matches, but I do think that the the solution, I mean, one of the solutions is exactly to to, to try to control as much as possible. I mean, to at least uh, leave all that the unpredictability aside. Right? And by that, I mean uh, studying your opponent very well and knowing uh, as well as you can what's about to come, what's about to hit you, how they attack, how they defend, how they, which sort of gives you. If you have, if as a player, you have that control of of, of proceedings. Uh, I think you emotions will run up, maybe not just as high. They will still be enthusiastic and excited because derbies are exactly that. But uh, you will underneath it, underneath it all, you will feel that uh, you have some some sense of control over things. Uh, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think that 
I don't think that's the case anymore in terms of everything going out the window. If it is, it's it's. Uh, I don't think it's a good thing because if whether it's Jurgen Klopp or Guardiola or Mourinho or whatever, if you see, usually the teams that are better prepared in terms in tactical terms are usually the ones that are able to keep a a, a firmer grip of of, of how things uh, develop in matches. So uh, I think the easiest way or the uh, I think the Sure, most way of, of, of getting your players to control their emotions is exactly that, is to work on your, on your game plan, is to work on, on the details, is to work as, as focused as possible on the specific details of your opponents, how they do their throw-ins, how they go about their set pieces, which, which, uh, when you go onto the pitch, it gives you that extra margin of, of, of assuredness of that you know what you're doing, that you're less I don't know, vulnerable to how the match will will, uh, will, will develop, and I think that makes a huge difference. Um, but I mean, that's a bit easy to 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 say on the outside. Um, in, on the inside, I know that uh, derbies are, are charged uh, situations, emotionally charged situations. Um, if things go normally, I think that I still think that the best prepared team will win. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andy. Uh, during George Zusha's time as Benfica coach, in 15 matches against Sporting, he won 10, drew 4 and lost just 1. Uh, the two sides met in the Super Cup, of course, at the start of the season, JJ, uh, now coach of Sporting, and uh, he was smiling at the end again as Sporting ran out 1-0 winners. Uh, do you think his incredible record in this fixture, uh, and of course a record that Benfica's players are acutely aware of, do you think that gives Sporting a little bit of a psychological advantage? I think it does, but not as much as the Super Cup to, to which you referred, because the most notable thing about that, and it's the most thrilling 1-0 game I think I've seen all season still, um, a couple of months into the season, is the fact that Sporting played with a very Benfica-like swagger. If, if, if they'd have like, been wearing giant hats with neon signs on 10 metres tall saying, we are George Jesus players, <laughs> they could not have made it any more obvious. And um, I, I think that, that that is the biggest psychological blow of them all. That, like, the, the, the feeling that you got from that, that he has very much taken the magic with him and put it into those players. And, um, you, you know, going all the way back to the start of the pod when... Um, we, we were talking about uh, Lopetegui uh, being able to prove it in the biggest matches is the most important thing and that's what stopped a lot of people being convinced about Lopetegui at the start you know, when he lost those big games to, to Sporting in the Cup and uh, to Benfica in, in the Liga both at the Dragao and um, the mastery of the big matches is, is what ultimately makes your reputation and um, Jesus has done that time and, and, and time again, certainly in a, a domestic context. So I think um, that that is the, the thing that Benfica players really need to get out of their mind. I mean, obviously there was the whole Texgate thing and all the rest of it. Um, maybe Bruno de Cavalli has given him two phones this week because he's <laughs> such a mischief maker. <laughs> maybe he's got really William Cavalli <laughs> text for him and all the rest of it as well because. Um, you know, Jesus is an extremely mischievous man as well as a very good coach. And um, I think we have to presume that that psychological hold is there until proven otherwise on Sunday. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Okay, Vasco. Well, you just mentioned uh, that you thought tactics would indeed, uh, or tactical plans would indeed uh, pay, play a big role in the game. So, uh, from a tactical point of view, where do you see the key battles on Sunday? Where do you think this game may be won and lost? <clears throat> well, first things first, I mean, I'm, I'm profoundly biased about tactics, so <laughs> I, I admit uh, flat out that it might not be the case. Uh, true Portuguese that, style. <laughs> <laughs> it, it might end up uh, being some detail, uh, some emotional thing, some stupid lunch, red card, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, from a tactical point of view, I'm particularly interested in two things. One is uh, how Sporting will cope, how Benfica will cope with uh, with, with Sporting's uh, three-man midfield, uh, because uh, just um, Benfica usually play with two men, and um, with usually um, Samaris and um, and then Almeida. Uh, and the uh, wingers don't really tuck inside, so I'm a bit uh, curious about how 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 they will handle uh, William Carvalho, Romário, Adrian Silva. Adrian Silva. Uh, I'm I'm interested in that, and I think that might be one of the one of the keys to the match, because I, I think Benfica might be just overloaded uh, there, and Jonathan and and how Jimenez don't contribute that much defensively, so they might be overrun. Uh, as they were in Galat in, in Turkey, sorry. Uh, on the other hand, I'm really, really quite interested to see how Jean Jesus will try to counteract Jonas because he was, I think, one of those players that, uh, for instance, like Saviola or Aymar, that just screamed Jean Jesus. He's, uh, he's all about the, the coming short, the, the looking for passing options, the positioning yourself where in the blind side of opponents. So I'm really, really, really curious about how Jesus will try to stop that threat because his sporting centre-backs are not good at, at, at tracking um, a player like Jonas high up. Willem Carvalho will probably be trying to smother Benfica up, up front. So I'm pretty sure that both Jonas and, and Gaetan will, will tuck inside to try to overload that holding midfielder area. Because I think that's one of sporting vulnerabilities, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. Well, if your appetite isn't whetted already, it certainly will be after listening to all these uh, views about uh, what really promises to be an, uh, an amazing event on a Sunday evening here in Portugal. Finally, uh, I know football experts don't really like being asked this question. But this is Portugal podcast number 100, so I'm afraid it's no holds barred, my friends. Uh, your predictions for the outcome on Sunday. Uh, Andy, what's going to happen? 1-1, one, one, I think. I, I just, uh, like I said, I do think um, Jesus has something uh, over Benfica and that, that Super Cup spectre looms large, but Benfica are exceptionally strong at home. Mm-hmm. And Vasco? Uh, 2-1 for Sporting. Okay. And with oh, domination oh. from Sporting. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> what? I, I didn't get that, sorry. It's, it's big, it's brave, I like it. <laughs> Vasco doesn't mince his words. <laughs> okay, yeah, well... Uh, I think uh, I will actually join Vasco in that uh, prediction. I've got a feeling that, uh, like Andy just mentioned a while ago, George Jesus has really brought uh, uh, you know, his magic to the Alvalade. 
I think we even saw that yesterday. Uh, I went to see Sporting against uh, Albanian side, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. <laughs> and uh, he actually chose a second string 11, and yet Sporting played some beautiful football, ran out 5-1 winners, and uh, that distinctive Georges Jesus, you know, all-out attacking style, was there for everyone to see. And uh, I think that's going to be, uh, that might just give them the edge against Benfica. Although, like Andy said, they have been uh, particularly strong at home this season. So, all set for a fantastic uh, fantastic day. Uh, I'd love to talk about Portuguese football all day long with such two distinguished bearers of insight into the game in Portugal. But unfortunately, time has beaten us. Uh, thank you once again, Andy, for your time. Yes, um, that's an absolute pleasure. Sorry for the interruption there. It was um, Hui Vittoria on the line. I'm looking for you too. <laughs> okay. And thank you also, Vasco. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to, to keep this tradition going. And I'm re- I feel really honoured to be part of this. So oh. thank you, Tom. And thank you, Andy. Okay, no problem. Thank you. The, the pleasure is all ours. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget, as well as the podcast, all your Portuguese football needs are catered for at the site portugal.net. That's www.portugal.net. So head over there for the build-up, the news and the reaction about the derby. Hope you enjoyed it and here's to the next 100 podcasts. Até a próxima!